Sometimes good theology is found in very unlikely places. Sometimes good psychology is found in children's stories. And uh, I want you to just prepare your hearts for this session that we're about to go into here by listening to a, a few pages from a story. Lay aside your adult posturing and your struggle to understand and your mature thinking and just be a kid with me for a minute and listen to this story from Marjorie Williams' little book, The Velveteen Rabbit. It goes like this. There once was a velveteen rabbit and in the beginning he was really splendid. He was fat and bunchy as a rabbit should be. His coat was spotted brown and white, and he had real thread whiskers, and his ears were lined with pink satin. On Christmas morning, when he sat wedged in the top of the boy's stocking with a sprig of holly between his paws, the effect was charming. There were other things in the stocking, nuts and oranges and a toy engine and chocolate almonds and a clockwork mouse, but the rabbit was the best of all. For at least two hours, the boy loved him, and then aunts and uncles came to dinner, and there was great rustling of tissue paper and unwrapping of parcels, and in the excitement of looking at all the new presents, the velveteen rabbit was forgotten. For a long time, he lived in the toy cupboard or on the nursery floor, and no one thought very much about him. He was naturally shy, and being only made of velveteen, some of the more expensive toys snubbed him. The mechanical toys were very superior and looked down upon everyone else. They were full of modern ideas and pretended they were real. The model boat, who had lived through two seasons and lost most of his paint, caught the tone from them and never missed an opportunity of referring to his rigging in technical terms. The rabbit could not claim to be a model of anything, for he didn't know that real rabbits existed. He thought they were all stuffed with sawdust like himself, and he understood that sawdust was quite out of date and should never be mentioned in modern circles. Even Timothy, the jointed wooden lion, who was made by the disabled soldiers and should have had broader views, put on airs and pretended he was connected with the government. Between them all, the poor little rabbit was made to feel himself very insignificant and commonplace, and the only person who was kind to him at all was the skin horse. The skin horse had lived longer in the nursery than any of the others. He was so old that his brown coat was bald in patches and showed the seams underneath, and most of his hair and his tail had been pulled out to string bead necklaces. He was wise, for he had seen a long succession of mechanical toys arrive to boast and swagger, and by and by break their mainsprings and pass away. He knew that they were only toys and would never turn into anything else. For nursery magic is very strange and wonderful, and only those playthings that are old and wise and experienced, like the skin horse, understood all about it. What is real? asked the rabbit one day when they were lying side by side near the nursery fender before Nana came to tidy up the room. Does it mean having things that buzz inside you and a stick-out handle? Real isn't how you are made, said the skin horse. It's a thing that happens to you. When a child loves you for a long, long time, 
not just to play with, but really loves you, then you become real. Does it hurt to become real? Said the rabbit. Sometimes, said the skin horse, for he was always truthful. When you are real, you don't mind being hurt. Does it, does it happen all at once, like being wound up, he asked, or, or does it happen bit by bit? It doesn't happen all at once, said the skin horse. You become. It takes a long time. That's why it doesn't often happen to people who break easily or have sharp edges or who have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you are real, most of your hair has been loved off and your eyes drop out and you get loose in the joints and kind of shabby. But these things don't matter at all because once you are real, you can't be ugly except to people who don't understand. Does it hurt to be real? Yeah, it does. But if you become real, you don't mind the pain. And you're not ugly, except to people who don't understand. Ugliness, hurt, pain, all of that seems to be connected to this struggle with self-acceptance, doesn't it? I don't want to talk to you theologically. I don't want to teach in this session. I want to talk to you out of my heart. There are some categories that I will address, but there are some fine materials already in print on the subject of self-acceptance. If you want to study the subject, then it's available. Me, Myself, and I by Dr. Archibald Hart, published by Vine Books, one of the finest books on the subject out, bringing together both the theological and the psychological, and I strongly recommend that you obtain that book. Leanne's book, Restoring the Christian Soul, which uh, deals with the whole subject of self-acceptance in the whole first, actually the first three chapters. And then some of my own teaching that I've done covers the subject from a theological and psychological standpoint. But I'm not satisfied with that. Somehow I feel the need to communicate on a more personal level. And that's what we're going to try to do in this session together. And then in our last session, we'll go back and pick up where we left off on the more theological. But let's talk about some of the nitty-gritty of self-acceptance. First of all, one of the characteristics of those who have not come into self-acceptance, and this is not true of all people, but it's certainly true of most, especially males and in many females, is the problem of masturbation. Masturbation shows up in the soul of a person who has not come into self-acceptance in this way. Uh, masturbation is a normal experimental behavior for, for children approaching and coming through puberty. But about the time that a person achieves self-acceptance at the end of puberty is also about the time that masturbation would no longer be a characteristic of that person's behavior. So, consequently, the absence of self-acceptance constitutes a continuation of the behavior of masturbation. What is the connection between masturbation, therefore, and self-acceptance? It seems to be this, that the anxiety and insecurity that the heart feels when uh, it, it has not come into self-acceptance, 
the anxiety uh, of social rejection, the fear of not fitting in, the hunger to be like other people, the tendency to look at other people and cannibalize their appearance. Leanne Payne says in reference to this, Puberty and adolescence is the narcissistic stage for all of us. We are mainly concerned about our bodies. We look at ourselves in the mirror, examining every little bump on our faces, every inch of our torsos. We want to know if we have the right kind of equipment for being male or female, and we fear that we don't. Girls don't like the size of their breasts, either too small or too large, the shape of their legs, the color and texture of their hair, on and on. Boys often focus on their size, their physiques and their genitalia, their physical strength and their competence in sports. In this culture, they often suffer a severe sense of sexual inferiority as they compare themselves to others. To whatever degree we fail to emerge from this adolescent narcissistic stage, we will be stuck in some form or manifestation of the wrong kind of self-love. Failing to love ourselves aright, we will love ourselves wrong. This, by the way, let me interject here before I continue this quote from Leanne. This, this is what we're talking about when we refer to 2 Timothy chapter 3. In the last days, the Spirit speaks expressly that dangerous times will come because men will be lovers of self. This is the lovers of self that uh, Paul is talking about. Those who are stuck in the narcissistic, uh, self-centered, pubescent mindset. What do we mean by narcissistic? We mean based on the old Greek myth of Narcissus, a person who has never accepted themselves but has a sick preoccupation with themselves. Narcissus was a young boy in Greek mythology who saw his own reflection in the water and reached in to hug himself and fell in and drowned. And that's what we do when we become self-centered and develop the wrong kind of self-love. Leanne goes on to say here, Failing to love ourselves aright, we will therefore love ourselves amiss. The rampant, morbid practice of introspection is one of the most prevalent of these narcissistic manifestations, and the anxious practice of it can be as pernicious to personality development as masturbation when carried past puberty and homosexuality, two of the more obvious examples of love turned inward. To achieve a healthy personality, we must pass from this self-centered stage to the self-acceptance that is full and secure. Whoever does not accept himself will be totally engrossed in himself. This is exactly what happens where masturbation is concerned. Now, in all people who have failed to come to a sense of self-acceptance, masturbation uh, will in some degree or other show up. But what about those who don't have masturbation in the truest sense of the word? I mean, they're, they're not genitally focused. They're not sexually focused. Well, I've come to realize that in some of these people, there is a tendency toward what I've come to call emotional masturbation. They don't necessarily give in to the outward behavior of masturbation, but they do it mentally. Movies old songs, romantic novels, living in the past or living in some kind of unreal fantasy where they uh, imagine a life that is not really real to them. It's a terrible thing to spend your whole life watching movies about living and never live, reading books about other people's lives but never tasting it for yourself. 
So I call this emotional masturbation because just as in sexual masturbation, there is a fantasy life where you don't really enter into real relationship with another human being. You just live to fulfill your own needs in your own way, in your own imagination, without the more difficult and costly interaction that would be required in marriage. In the same way, some people do this emotionally, and it's like emotional masturbation. They live in the novel or in the movie or in the TV show or in the old rock and roll records or the old love songs, and their whole world is wrapped up with this. I'm not saying that there's not a, a valid place for certain kinds of sentiment, but a sentimentality that is so powerful that it keeps us from living every day in the present and looking forward to an ongoing developmental life with other people is like masturbation. One of the reasons why we're so susceptible to that kind of thing is it's very likely that we lived a childhood of fantasy. There were no there were no adults to interact with. There were no one there was no one calling us into meaningful conversation. You see, especially a father, a mother can do this of course also. But uh, a father and mother who interact with their children, who talk with their children, who, I mean, meaningfully talk to them, calling them into a, a higher and richer place than, than just the mere uh, child imagination can achieve on its own. Introducing the children uh, by conversation into a world that is far greater than they would ever have been able to have discovered on their own. Without that kind of interaction, without that kind of communication and conversation, the child's soul remains uh, turned inward and uh, underdeveloped. And if this continues into adulthood, the same thing happens. Uh, and then as the adult, and as the person uh, grows into adulthood and begins to be exposed, not by parental direction and loving guidance toward healthy imagination, they begin to develop their own imagination by things they see their peers do and, and watch and by the music and by the media and by whatever tawdry novels or, or uh, writings that they do find themselves uh, involved in. And in the worst cases, they never even achieve the capacity to read. They just well, look at pornography or, or do drugs or whatever. But whatever the case may be, the reason that people get stuck in this kind of emotional masturbation has to do with a hunger for real, meaningful relationship that never is offered to them in a fulfilling way, so they take the closest thing they can get to it, which is the media, and uh, live their lives in a, a very unfulfilling and unreal interaction. It's actually not a dialogue, but a monologue. They're not talking to someone or being talked to by someone. They're observing uh, from a distance, uh, an emotional voyeur watching from a distance and never really partaking of human touch, human interaction in a way that would call them into a higher state of being. Now, for the person who has dealt with this, for the person who has wrestled through the pain of this, a door closes on the past in the soul of a mature person. It's not a door of denial where we play like we had a, a happy childhood when we didn't or where we uh, just refuse to look at the pain because it's too painful. 
It's not that. It's just that when you wrestle through self-acceptance and you, you recognize that uh, you didn't have what you didn't have and that you have tried to replace it with that which is not real and not fulfilling, you come to a point where you are able to settle that question of what you didn't have and what you didn't enjoy. And you're able to close that door and no longer are you reliving the lost past by the movies you watch or so forth. Uh, I've sat in many a theater and watched people sobbing. And it's it's not a healthy grief. It's not a, a healing grief. It's a, a, a longing. It is what Paul calls in Second Corinthians a worldly sorrow. It's not... It's not a godly work of grace that brings them past the pain. It's just a stirring up of the pain so they can feel the sadness of it, very much like masturbation is a stirring up of lust in order to feel the passion of it. But it, jet, uh, it, it, it doesn't produce life. Like masturbation, it, it just dissipates until the emotions can be stirred up and heightened again by the next movie or the next book or the next old love song. And so the door that closes in the soul of a person who's worked through this uh, is a door of grief that has been worked through. There is a healthy grief that is connected with the process of self-acceptance. It is the grief, and what, let, me, let me define grief. What is grief? Grief is a healthy response to a valid loss. Grief is facing something as it really is and recognizing that it is a loss. Yes, you should have had the love of a father and you didn't. Yes, you should have had the affirming words of uh, mature adults around you giving you guidance and direction and you didn't have it and you suffered from not having it. And facing that reality is a very painful thing. I'll never forget uh, one time a friend of mine said to me, Clay, you're going to have to accept the fact that you're never going to be anybody's little boy. And when he said it, I was angry, I was hurt, I was enraged, actually, because it, it hit too close to home. It was too exactly correct for me to be able to hear it. But it was, uh, you know, faithful of the wounds of a friend. And it, was, it, it, it enabled me, after I got over the initial pain of facing that reality, to face the fact that, I was, in fact, living my entire life in my 20s uh, trying to regain a lost childhood uh, in which I was never anybody's little boy. I was never cuddly. I was never cute. I was never uh, anybody that... Uh, I wasn't the kind of kid that people would want to pick up and hold on their lap. I was too chunky and uh, probably too mean. <laughs> but the fact is that that left a, a very deep hole in me. And uh, I could watch movies or see some story on television about that kind of interaction between an adult and a child. And I could relive all the pain, all the loss. And I would sit there and cry and cry. You know, one day I realized, you know, what good is this? This is, this is not any good. I didn't go into denial and say, okay, I'm just going to buck up and be tough and not feel this kind of pain anymore. I didn't do that. I, I let myself feel the pain, but not in some kind of... Uh, uh, emotional masturbatory way I, I lifted it up to the Lord and I grieved out before the Lord all the things I had always wanted and never had in, in uh, childhood 
And that takes a long time sometimes. That doesn't happen overnight. You can't experience all of those emotions in just a short period of time. You have to give yourself to, uh, room to breathe between uh, sessions, so to speak. Sometimes you may go through this for several weeks and then, or several days, and then for several weeks you won't experience it because you, you can't emotionally engage that kind of intense uh, uh, struggle emotionally for, for very long. But there comes a point when you begin to be able to do what uh, Oswald Chambers says in My Utmost for His Highest, I think it's on February 18th. Uh, he says there comes a point when you lay your despair down and you let the past sleep on the bosom of Jesus. And you recognize that some things on this planet will never be put right and that God holds all of the past, the present, and the future in his hand, and he will deal with whatever needs to be dealt with in eternity, and we can wait for him to deal with it. And what doesn't get dealt with here will be dealt with adequately and fully there. But uh, self-acceptance has as much to do with what you aren't as it has to do with what you are. What do I mean by that? Well... When we talk about self-acceptance, I'll, I'll never forget a woman coming into a meeting one time all upset with me because she had come to a conference a few months before and had heard the, the, the short version uh, that we have to do in the conferences because of our lack of time. I, I'd done the short version on self-acceptance and she had gone away thinking that what I was telling her to do was to go home and try to achieve the outside appearance that she wanted to achieve and uh, that that was self-acceptance. She missed the point entirely. She said, you know, I've, I've changed my hair. I've changed my body. I've, I've done all the things I need to do that I thought would really make me into the person I can live with. And it uh, still hadn't worked. I still don't feel what you said a person would feel if they came into self-acceptance. It was kind of a difficult conversation because she obviously didn't, didn't even have the, the, the slightest idea what I mean by self-acceptance. Remember what we said in the first session? Self-acceptance means just that. There are certain things I come to accept about myself. I may not like them. They're, they're not what I would necessarily choose. But I come to accept them. I come to embrace them. And when I embrace them, then that gives me a, a, a solid place to stand and from that point, I begin to become again. I begin to grow. I begin to become. For instance, when you don't have self-acceptance, you're like a person trying on hats. You, you know, you don't know which hat is yours, so everybody's hat looks good. And, uh, you know, what, one minute you may want to be a little boy or a little girl in some father's arms because that's the part of you you're in touch with is the abandoned little child who never had a childhood. The next minute you may look at somebody that is an adult who has achieved a certain degree of uh, uh, success in the eyes of the world and you find yourself wanting to try their hat on. And uh, the next minute you look at someone who is physically attractive in a way that you feel that you're not and you want to try their hat on. And you can't wear all those hats at one time, can you? You wear them all, and yet you wear none of them. You would like to taste some of all of those people, and yet none of them is really a part of you. You're left empty, like a, like a projector with no movie in it. You really have nothing of your own. Uh, 
you have to have cartridges put into you to give you any image, to give you any insight uh, or any identity about yourself. And so the person who is constantly trying on hats is never coming into true personhood. I must agree to be the person that I am. One of my students came in my office one day a few years ago, young fellow in his late teens, and he said, I don't know what I'm supposed to be. I mean, we live in Texas. He was a student in uh, junior college there and had, had some real promise at academically, but he also had some promise athletically. But he also was a fairly good musician, and he was a pretty good horse trainer. And he said, I don't know which one I'm supposed to be. Am I, the, am I the horse trainer? Should I wear a cowboy hat? Am I the musician? Should I play my saxophone? Am, am I the student? Should I be more committed to academics? Or am I called to preach? Sometimes when you're preaching, I, I feel like I'd like to do what you do. Well, these are all normal questions for an 18-year-old. They're the questions that he shouldn't be asking, but they're, they're also the questions that he should be getting answers to fairly soon so that he can decide which one of those identities he is to pursue. But the bottom line is, if he wears the cowboy hat, that's not his identity. That's just what he does. If he plays the saxophone, that's not his identity. That's just one characteristic of his talents. Self-acceptance doesn't have to do with achieving a certain degree of prowess in a certain area of expertise. Self-acceptance has to do with something at the core of you. Let me explain more what I mean by that by reading again Oswald Chambers to you. From my utmost for his highest, he quotes 1 Thessalonians 4.3, This is the will of God, even your sanctification. He says, There is a dying side before there's a resurrected side. We've been talking about dying to self. This is more of a biblical view of what it means to die to self. He says, in sanctification, God has to deal with us on the death side as well as the life side. Now, many of us spend so much time in the place of death that we become like a tomb ourselves. There's always a royal battle before real sanctification begins to work in us. Always something that tugs with resentment in us against the demands of Jesus Christ. Immediately, the Spirit of God begins to show us what sanctification really means, and the struggle begins. If anyone come to me and hate not his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, the thing that Chambers is saying here is that just like a person who has the world by the tail, when he hears the gospel, may, may find himself in a real struggle like the rich young ruler. Do I want to give up my happy and fulfilled lifestyle to follow the Lord Jesus Christ if it means maybe that I'll end up at, at my own Calvary? That's a battle. But did you know that I've seen people who have had unhappy childhoods and unhappy backgrounds struggle just as much to be willing to let go of their sad memories because Jesus is calling them to let it go and to just become completely uh, willing to throw all of the past at his feet. Chambers goes on here to say, the Spirit of God in the process of sanctification will strip me until I am nothing but me and then bring me to the place of death. Am I willing to be just myself, nothing more, no friends, no father, no brother, no self-interest, simply ready for death? This is the condition of sanctification. No wonder Jesus said, I didn't come to send peace but a sword. This is where the battle comes, where so many of us give up. 
we refuse to be identified with the death of Jesus in this point? Am I willing to reduce myself simply down to just me? Determinately to strip myself of all my friends think of me, all I think of myself, and to hand myself naked over to God? The moment that I am, he will sanctify me wholly, and my life will be free from an unhealthy earnestness in connection with everything but God. That's what I'm talking about here. Becoming free of an unhealthy earnestness. What I've been calling here a uh, an unhealthy sentimentality uh, or an unhealthy preoccupation with which hat I should wear. An unhealthy preoccupation with what career can best make me look uh, successful and uh, like a valid person. Because, you know, even if you achieve all those things, then all that will be left in front of you is God having to strip them away from you again before he can show you your true self. But you said a while ago, Clay, that we're not supposed to just always die, always uh, be morbid, always think in terms of dying. Now you're talking about dying. Which is it? Well, when we talked about the young woman who had put to death her gift of making clothes, she was killing her true self. And she was doing it out of a morbid misunderstanding of the cross. Now, what I'm talking about is letting the morbid in us be put to death so that the true self can come to life. You see the difference? She'd been putting to death her true self, and a morbid self had come up and taken its place. What I'm telling you is that the morbid part of you, or the self-centered part of you, or the grieving part of you that loves to sit and think of all that your childhood never was, or all that you never had, or the the part of you that sits and uh, eats itself into oblivion because you're so grieved that you never had an athletic body, that's the part of you that Jesus is calling to come and die so that he can resurrect the, the true you, the real you. And see, when you embrace your true self, then you're able to become. That's my whole point here. Our desire is to become what he created us to be. And part of that becoming has to do with giving up preconceived ideas of who we are and how we should, how should, we should achieve that. For instance, I always wanted to be a scholar. I wanted to have the capacity to, to really uh, delve into the original languages. I don't have the mental capacity to do it. Now, when I say that I always wanted to be a scholar, what I mean is I wanted to be able to just think completely into academics. One of the reasons why I believe the Lord resisted that capacity in me was because he wanted me to minister to people. And I had a very strong tendency at times to just cut people off completely and sink into my intellect, which would have destroyed me. So God, you know, I had to come to a point of accepting that. I had to accept the fact that God did not give me a tremendous capacity for languages. He did not give me a, a capacity for uh, for scholastic ability beyond what he had created me to do. Another thing I always wanted to be, I always wanted to be little. All my life I wanted to be little. Uh, I was big for my age when I was four. I don't mean fat, that came later. But I was just bigger than most kids, and, and I can remember the comments my parents made, and they were not negative comments. They were just commenting the fact that I was usually a head taller than everybody else my own age, and I always was all the way up through high school, and I hated it. Uh, 
And you know, I've noticed since then the hundreds of people that that Mary and I minister to. Big guys want to be little, and little guys want to be big. Uh, big guys w- wish they were cuddly, and little guys wish they could uh, bench press an elephant. And it's just the characteristic of of uh, fallen man to never be satisfied with what he is and what he has. To never let love call us into being, but to always want to be what we choose to be, to be our own creator. Now, this is the, this is the root of all envy. Envy, the Bible says, is a rottenness of the bones. Envy is a very dangerous sin. One of the seven deadly sins that our forefathers wrote about and taught about. Envy is the foundation of all lust especially uh, homosexual lust, but all lust. It's the desire to, to obtain, to own, to take control of in order to enhance your own uh, uh, capacity or enhance your own sense of personal uh, value or, or power. I wrote a poem about that. I'm not one to share poems a lot, but these are things that I wrote while I was working through my own struggle with self-acceptance. This one is called Envy. It says, I stare at your eyes. I feel that I love you, but it's your eyes I love. And I don't really love them. I envy them. I really want them to be mine so others will look at me and love me the way I think I'm loving you. But I don't really love you. I just want your eyes. And looking at your eyes makes me hurt. When I look at the eyes of those I really do love, I don't hurt because I'm so happy their eyes are theirs. And I'm even happier because those eyes are looking at me and inviting me into life together with them. But your eyes, they make me hurt, not happy, because I'm not invited. Their beauty excludes me, so I hate you for having such beautiful eyes. I wish I could conquer you, all of you. Then I would have your eyes. I won't take the time to comment on the nuances of meaning that I was trying to express in that poem. But basically it has to do with the fact that when we don't come into self-acceptance, we try to find the missing parts of us in other people and we cannibalize those other people. This is true whether it's heterosexual or homosexual lust. It doesn't matter. Wherever there is a lust, wherever there is envy, wherever there is a desire to take. And it doesn't have to be sexual. It can be professional. It can be in ministry. One of the most devastating and painful things that Mary and I have had to face in our marriage is the number of people who have envied her in her relationship to me. Now, that's that's certainly not a commentary on any uh, greatness that I uh, have. It, it It has to do with the fact that people tend to focus on public figures, even if they're not very well known, and want to be next to them, not because they know them or love them, but because they have this idea that being up front gives you a certain uh, position of authority and value that it really does not give. All it really does is set you up for a bad fall if you don't have people around you who remind you that you're no big deal. But uh, the anger and the bitterness and the envy that would be portrayed uh, in non-vocal ways 
but very subtle ways toward toward Mary uh, after we married. The the power of envy, and it has a demonic element to it. The, the, the power of darkness can move right through envy. You need to realize this. When you're lusting after someone, you're, you're hurting them, whether they know that you're doing it or not. When you look at someone and you wish you had what they have, and you wish you could own what they are, whether it's some facet of of uh, achievement that they have obtained that you wish you could obtain or some part of their body that you wish you owned, uh, whether uh, you wish it was part of your body or wish you could have it sexually, whatever it is, just like the poem says, I, I look at your eyes and I envy them because I wish they were my eyes. Uh, and I hate you for having what I wish I had, but I think that I love you. This is that horrible love-hate that you see in so much so-called romance in our culture. Uh, how can love so right turn out to be so wrong? Because it's never, it never was love. It was envy. Now, <clears throat> when we begin to, when we, we begin to face that we are never going to be, you name it, whatever it is you're longing to be or wish you could have been, there's a grief. How do you go through the grief? I mentioned a while ago going through the grief process. Well, the first thing that I would say that you need to do is you need to write out in a prayer journal, begin to write down your feelings. Most of what I'm sharing with you on this tape is coming right out of my own prayer journal. You begin to write down the longings, the hurts, the pain. You begin to express yourself in honest and real terms. What you feel, what you felt. Uh, I remember one of the one of the things that came up in me, and this is a little embarrassing, but I, I, I feel like I need to, to, to try to tell it to you. I told you that I don't want to just be academic in this, this study. I, I want to try to tell you some things that I hope will help you in your own struggle with self-acceptance. But, uh, I, you know, I told you a while ago that people who don't accept themselves are dangerous to the people who love them. And uh, even after Mary and I were engaged, she would say to me sometimes, you don't realize how much people care about you. And and uh, you don't realize how much of an influence you wield over people who are around you, especially younger people who look up to you, you as a leader. But because I was still unfulfilled in that part of my sense of self-acceptance, I was dangerous to these young people. They would look to me for help or look to me for guidance or uh, ask me to come and be a part of, of something in their life like a uh, you know, some athletic event or something, and I might show up and I might not show up. And if I didn't show up, my attitude was, well, I mean, you know, it's no big deal whether I show up or not. They don't care. I'm not their daddy. But the fact was, to them, I was their daddy. And some, to some degree, I, I was filling a role in their life of a male authority figure who had given them a sense of security and love and having no father of their own, they might have been looking to me for that kind of love and, and affirmation. And when I just wouldn't show up, in my heart, I didn't show up because my lack of self-acceptance caused me to feel that it was no big loss if I didn't show up because big, who am I? I'm nothing. But on their end, when I didn't show up, it was saying to them that they are nothing. They have no value and they are not a high priority on my list. You see how lack of self-acceptance causes me to be dangerous? to those who love me. I've repented to as many of those young people as I could and, and, and tried to help them understand the, the lack in me that caused me to, to hurt them that way. 
But another thing that I want to just kind of let my hair down about and talk about here in the context of self-acceptance is even more painful to admit. Uh, as a teenager, we had a, a limited degree of, of bodybuilding in our athletic program as a kid. And uh, before I, I ever got into that program, uh, when I was in grammar school, uh, very early I was molested by a man who uh, lived near us. And the molestation was not what you would call a full-fledged sexual molestation. That happened to me later when I was 13. But I was about 10 or 11 about the time that this happened. And uh, I was overweight. I was chunky. That all melted off when I got into junior high school and then high school. And I was driven, driven in high school uh, to, to keep that weight down. And uh, I achieved a certain degree of, of athletic ability, not, not nearly what I wanted to achieve. But, but what drove me to achieve what little I did achieve was an anger and a rage in me that was rooted in this molestation. And the molestation took place in a very painful way, uh, a very unusual way. All molestation is painful. But uh, this man pulled me aside uh, on a dark street in my hometown. And he reached into my clothes and he began to fondle my breasts like a man would fondle a woman's breasts. And he began to talk to me about the idea that I had the body that could satisfy the lust of a man. And it ended and I went on down the street. Very painful. But it awakened in me a hunger, a desperate hunger for a man to tell me that I was masculine. Never occurred to me, of course, as a child, that for a man to treat me as a sexual object like that would not be healed by another man treating me as a sexual object. But in my mind, see how, how fallen, how we think when we're fallen. I thought if another man would, would handle me physically and sexually uh, and tell me that I was pleasing to him as a masculine being, that that would somehow counteract the feminine role that this man had tried to put me in. Well, that happened to me later uh, when I was molested at 13 and then again at 14 by men, uh, older boys who were hero figures in my life. And another poem that I wrote when I was working through the self-acceptance struggle over this, and uh, I was in a lot of pain over it, this poem was the result of working through that. I want you to just listen to it carefully see if the Holy Spirit will speak to you, especially if you have been the, uh, the victim of any kind of sexual molestation. And uh, it's called Parts. It says, You took me apart to yourself. I thought that meant I would be a part of your life. But then you focused on parts of you. And you focused on parts of me. And when that part was over, we parted. And not only was I not a part of your life, I was apart from you even more now. Then I broke apart. I've been looking for the missing parts in parts of others ever since. But all I ever really wanted was to feel that I was a part of you. The first time you noticed me, I began to exist a little one day you threw me the ball, and I seemed to be invited inside, even though I dropped it. 
I wasn't even sure what inside was, but I desperately wanted in. Then came the day you, a senior, called me by name. I was just a kid. How could you pay attention to my name? And that day, I felt like I was named. You were a titan, and I was a kid. But you knew my name. The first time you rubbed my head, my head felt golden. Then it seemed to grow too big. I was in. For the first time, you yelled at me, and my big head shrank. It needed to shrink, but my heart shrank too. The first time you put your arm around me and spoke gently to me, I felt corrected and protected, and, and even though next to you I felt little, your arm seemed to be going into my arms, and I knew I had strength to please you next time. The first time we wrestled, not only was your arm going into my arm, but your legs were going into my legs, and your chest into my chest, and your back into my back, and when you would look at me and smile, your eyes told my eyes that we were part of each other, and that I was going to be like you one day, and being like you was being itself, because you were like a god to me, and the first time we touched the parts, all the good I have been describing leaked out. And from then on, all we seemed to have were the broken parts of what I had hoped would be a holy partnership. I did not want parts of you. I just wanted to be a part of you. Because we were broken apart, I was cut off from all the good that I was getting from you before we touched each other's parts. Now... All I have are the parts. This was not an easy thing to write. But by the grace of God, writing it gave me the capacity to get out on paper the feelings, the hurt, the pain, the shame of things I've never been able to tell anybody, never been able to talk about. Now I'm talking about it on a tape that very likely could go into every state in the Union and across the United States and Canada and Europe. But I'm saying it because by the grace of God, by His infinite mercy, by, by being able to come into His presence with all these secrets, all these hurts, all this shameful, the shameful memories, by being able to bring my body into the presence of the Lord, I was able to transcend the pain, put this on paper, Pray through the grief of it. Cry it out. Throw things across the room if I have to. And give it to God. God created my body. So I can talk to God about my body. God was there when my body was misused by the man who, who fondled my breasts. Then God was there with the older teenage boy that had come along that should have been a big brother or a, even a father figure to me but instead became another sexual molester. Uh, I was able to talk about all of those things and get them out on paper and cry them out and then transcend them. Now, maybe Leanne's statement will make a little more sense to you if you've ever read this before from The Broken Image. Leanne says, quote, When we first will to follow, when we first attempt obedience to God, 
God immediately becomes no longer just some vague force, but very personal. Our idea of him changes. Then, as he points to the deeps of our personality, deeps both good and bad that we are not in touch with, our idea about ourselves begins to change. We find that we do not know ourselves very well. Herein is both the identity crisis and its cure. As we will to be in him, he gathers together the scattered parts of ourselves we've been separated from and brings them all together and gives them their proper name. You see, in the presence of the Lord, I could bring all those parts of me into his presence. You see, when that older boy touched me sexually, I thought it would somehow heal me. I thought that would take away the pain of having been fondled by that other alcoholic man. But instead, it just broke another part of me off until finally I I had several views of myself. I had the fat little ugly kid view. I had the angry athlete view. I did everything I knew how athletically to overcome the little fat kid view. And uh, even when my body came into line with what I wanted it to be, it didn't change how I felt at all. Uh, This is true of women, for instance, who struggle with anorexia nervosa. They can look in the mirror and, and see their ribs because they're so skinny and think that their ribs are fat, you see. So this is what we mean by neurosis, the inability to see things as they really are. Uh, and as we, as we finally come to the end of ourselves and fall into the presence of the Lord, he begins to point all the parts of us out that we are separated from. We're able to forgive. See how the three barriers interact together? I was able to forgive those, the man who, who fondled me. I was able to forgive the older boy who, who molested me and used me. Uh, periodically all through high school until it became as much my own sin as it was his. Uh, I was able to forgive my father for affirming all of this darkness and and, uh, giving it a a place in my life by his own words. And I was able to forgive myself and begin to receive forgiveness. I was able to forgive the stupid teenager that I was. You know, that's one of the most important aspects of of, uh, self-acceptance. I had to forgive the stupid little kid that I was in grammar school. I had to forgive the the wayward and lustful and angry kid that I was in high school. I had to, to some degree, have a conversation with that kid. Now, this can be taken too far, and some of our modern psychologies tend to take it too far. Uh, I'd like to read to you just a comment from Leanne's Restoring the Christian Soul, which speaks to this tendency of, coddling the inner child. Let me speak to that just for a moment. She says here, a contemporary example of a mistaken attempt at self-realization is the search for, quote, my lost child, the girl or boy that I was or somehow could have been apart from the unhealthy circumstances I faced. There's something ephemeral about the self at any stage of our development when the person who was neglected or abused in childhood looks to Christ, forgives others, and is forgiven he or she can find healing of childhood memories. In this way, our Lord does in a very real way come present to the wounded inner child. But he deals with people as the adults they really are. And when he heals our memories from any age, 
we simply find a greater integration of who we are in Him. But we will never find our lost child by looking for it. Our true self at any stage of our becoming is in Christ. He is the road out of the hell of self and of the self-centered life. And then she quotes C.S. Lewis's fine statement where Lewis says, Your real new self will not come as long as you are looking for it. It will only come when you are looking for him. Now, so you understand the difference here. When I talk about making peace with the teenager that I was or the mean little child that I was, I'm not talking about coddling or getting into deep conversation with my inner child. I'm simply facing the fact that there was a part of me that was broken off from the true me and caused me to develop a, a, an unreal view of myself. And this, and this unreal part of me began to take on a, a fantasy existence of its own outside the real me. And I began to be split by it. I began to be cut in pieces by it. And it eventuated, as some of you have heard in my own testimony, in a complete breakdown when I was in my mid-twenties. And that breakdown, of course, was the grace of God, which finally brought me to the healing work that the Lord began to do in my life. But are you beginning to catch on to what we mean by getting to the the bottom of the nuts and bolts of inner healing and the nuts and bolts of self-acceptance, not just learning principles, not just reading books, not just listening to tapes. You can learn all this stuff and listen to all this stuff all day long. But there has to come a point when you, yourself, turn the tape player off, put the books down, and go somewhere quiet and get before God and say, let's talk about this. i got to deal with this. This is how I really feel. I'm still driven by these feelings. I'm still driven by these reactions. And I've used masturbation to cover up the pain, or I've used emotional masturbation, crying in movies, or listening to old love songs. I love to feel the pain of it, but I'm never getting, seem to, I never seem to be getting past the pain. Or I'm always trying on different hats, trying to become this person, or trying to become that person, or, you know, going to this, uh, uh, social event or going to that health club, trying to get the right look, trying to achieve the right outward appearance that I can live with that will make me feel at home within. And none of that is working, Lord. It's it's all these broken pieces I need to bring before you and find them integrated in you. King David said in Psalm 86, verse 11, uh, Unite my heart to fear your name. Unite my heart. What's he, what he's saying here? He says, let integrity preserve me. He's saying, bring all these broken pieces of me that are disintegrating me and integrate them in me so that integrity may preserve me so that I don't disappear through the cracks. I don't disintegrate and become a non-entity. Now you may say, Clay, I've done that. I've cried. I've opened up to God. I've prayed. That's my whole point. I've prayed and prayed and prayed. How come I'm not making any progress? Well, I don't want to presume to say that I know exactly what your situation is, but I can only tell you what I learned from my own experience, and that is there is a difference between crying out to God and expressing your pain and really giving it to Jesus and reconciling yourself to the fact that you are absolutely hopeless without Him and you're going to have to live uh, dependent on Him all the days of your life. Uh what I mean by that is there comes a point in our lives 
where we get disillusioned. And it's a good thing to get disillusioned. When I was a kid, when I first came into the infilling of the Spirit, I had the illusion of how my life was going to be. And that illusion was propped up by some of the popular preaching of the day that seemed to imply that being a Christian was a guaranteed health, wealth, fulfillment, joy, happiness, and then the rapture. God disillusioned me. He, he took the illusion away, which was a good thing. It was not an easy thing. It was a very painful thing. But I got, de- I got delivered from the, those illusions. God took me into the valley of pain. I cried a lot more than I laughed. I, I hurt a lot more than I didn't hurt. And in that process of pain and sorrow, I, I embraced the cross. And in the place of a search for happiness, I came, I came into the fullness of joy that I never dreamed possible. And God is still working that in my life. But what I'm trying to say to you is, if you are angry because God has not met you the way you wanted Him to meet you, it could very well be that the reason He has not met you is because you want Him to meet you on your terms and He's still waiting for you to be willing to meet Him on His. So many times I, I you know, said, God, I want to... <clears throat> I want my life to be like this. I, I want my life to go this way. And I would claim this promise or claim that promise. And all this promise claiming uh, bounced off of him like BBs off of a metal wall. What he wanted me to do was yield to him and say, take my life and do with me whatever you want. I trust you. I throw it all at your feet. And when I came to... And of course, we come to the, that that point of yielding to him in various stages in our life. We learn to yield to Him deeper and deeper. I've told this story before, and uh, I've never met the man that this story is about, but it's such a a clear picture of the kind of struggle toward self-acceptance that that we're trying to express here, that I want to tell it here. It's the story of a priest, we'll call him Charlie, a Roman Catholic priest who suffered from a horrible disfigurement from childhood, uh, from birth, actually. His eye was deformed. He had a, an eye that was located some two and a half inches below the normal place for the eye. It didn't function. It only served to make him look grotesque, and I don't think he could even see through it. You can imagine the kind of suffering that he went through, not only personally, but what he had thrown at him growing up, you know, how cruel children can be. But he became part of a parish and was walking down the street one day and happened to meet a friend of his who was in conversation with him for several minutes before he realized something's different about you, Charlie. What is it? And Charlie smiled and said, Oh, you notice there's something different about me. He said, Yeah, but I, I can't place what it is. What could it be? He said, Well, it's my eye. And his friend looked to see if there was anything different about his eye. And there wasn't. His eye looked the same as it always had looked. But Charlie said, no, you don't understand. It's not that my eye is different. It's that I'm different. You see, all these years I've thought people were looking at my eye and judging me and rejecting me, so I just tried to cut conversations short as quickly as I could because I knew people would try to cut conversations short with me and I wanted to get away from them before I had to go through the pain of them getting away from me. He said, you probably noticed over the years you've never been able to talk to me very much without feeling so preoccupied with my ugly face that you couldn't really hold a conversation. And 
Yet here today we've held a conversation for several minutes and you haven't felt the least bit intimidated. You see, all these times when you and I would meet and we would talk and, and you felt that you were being rude because you were staring at my eye, what was actually happening was I was the one telling you unconsciously and non-verbally, look at my face, isn't it ugly? You don't want to talk to me. You don't want to spend any time with me. Go on about your business because you don't want to have to stand here and talk to a man as ugly as I am. Well, he said, what have you done different, Charlie? What's made the difference? He said, well, a few days ago I was reading in the scriptures about the fact that the body has weak members in it and the stronger members should give the more earnest love and support to the weaker members. And I realized that I had hated my eye all my life. He said, I realize there's not going to be a transforming miracle to put my face back together. He said, I've given up that illusion. He said, in the resurrection, my face will be what it ought to be. But, but for now, I realized I've got to learn to live with things as they are and accept myself and accept my face. So I went off this weekend by myself with my eye. And we cried together. And I asked my eye to forgive me. And I took it into my body and gave it the more earnest love that it needs. And now as a result, I don't hate my eye and I'm not giving off nonverbal communications to you for you to hate it too. So we can stand here and talk together like two men who care for each other because I no longer hate part of myself. Lord, teach us this in Jesus' name.